As I was there alone, I could, to some extent, reinvent myself because I was the 26-year-old loser who was starting uni again. As much as people don't say that to my face, or it could be in my head, but that's what I felt during my time then. So I could, to some extent, reinvent myself. I made a bunch of new friends. I saw the world differently. When I went out hiking or camping in the backcountry, as they call it, I felt like I was one with nature again. When you go backcountry camping or hiking, there is a chance that you might die. There are grizzly bears, black bears, uh, wolves, and a host of bisons. Bisons can maul you to death. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 16 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya, and today's guest is Ruani, the co-founder of My Burger Lab, My Pizza Lab, and My Boba Lab. If you live in KL, you've probably heard of My Burger Lab. It's one of the most popular burger joints in town, known for its charcoal buns and highly innovative flavors, including the recent Nasi Lemak Burger, Salted Egg Yolk Burger, and PB&J Burger. But how did it all start? Well, for starters, Rooney was a uni dropout, but several significant incidences molded him. His time working at Starbucks, and also three summers spent working at Yellowstone in the States. In this interview, we deep dive into Rooney's story of how he went from being a uni dropout to forming a burger joint with two of his good friends and partners, Changming and Wikiet the challenges they faced in the early days. Big hint, they almost burned the kitchen down. To what it was like being a part of a viral trend, with people queuing up to two hours before opening just for their burgers, which ran up within two hours. And how, once that viral trend tapered off, how they solidified their business while creating a vibrant company culture among their employees, most of whom are university students. And if you're a burger lover... Rennie also shares the behind-the-scenes secrets on how they make their patty, how he conceptualizes some of their most popular flavors, the Nasi Lemak Burger, the PB&J Burger, and next season's flavor, the world's smelliest burger. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Welcome, Rangi, to this podcast. I normally like to start this interview by going back into a person's life and what they were like as a child. And during my research, I found that when you were growing up, you wanted to be a clown and a roller coaster designer. That's correct. You have done your research. Yes. How did that come about? What were you thinking of at the time? So I've always grown up wanting to be a crowd pleaser. I like making people happy. As a child, the first thing that you would associate happiness with, at least for me, was to be a clown because clowns are at parties. So that was my first association of what making people happy was. And as a child, when I make people laugh, there was a sense of joy that I derived from that. So it was something that a lot of people find odd. Uh, I mean, I've never told anyone about it until I get interviewed about it. So obviously, as I grew older and you're trying to figure out what you want to do in life after high school, just like a typical Malaysian family, I've always been brainwashed to be on the science side of things. So even in high school, I've always done math. I've always done science. So I knew that I had to be an engineer. What do you mean by hat? That's an interesting word to use. 
again, my dad over the years is like, you got to do this, you got to do that. And to me, given the circumstances of what was provided in terms of, hey, you got to be a scientist, you got to be a lawyer, a doctor, based on the grades that I had, based on what subjects I was interested in, engineering seemed to be the most likely choice. So to me, that was the path that I had to take. Chinese guy, good at math, good at physics. You're going into engineering. Even the counselors at that time would, would suggest. So then there's still a part of me that asks, what kind of engineer do I want to be? And mechanical to me at that time sounds like the most logical choice. Don't ask me why. But at the time, I didn't think I was cut out to be an electrical engineer. I mean, when you were choosing to go into college, you really don't think too much about what is the difference between an electrical or mechanical engineer. So civil engineer, all those didn't really jive with what I wanted to do. And I thought, okay, mechanical engineer, I, I get to play around with machines. I used to like cars back then and I like robots. So it, it made sense. Over the course of me going through college and uni, I developed a small interest in roller coasters. And I thought, hey, coasters is a theme park. It's where the clowns live, right? <laughs> it's it's kind of full circle. I like being on roller coasters. At that time, I, I, I think it was still the, hey, I could, being an engineer didn't need to be boring. I didn't need to be working in factories. I could be making something that made people happy through their, their physical uh, experience. I think in the two examples that I gave, which is either wanting to be a clown or, or wanting to be a roller coaster designer, it was still the same thing, which is to provide some form of experience that derives joy to the people around me. How I ended up in the FMB was simply because as I was studying, I worked part-time just to get a little bit more experience and also earn a little bit of side pocket money that I was able to derive that joy by serving people. And the people that I served, I was able to make them happy almost instantaneously just by giving them good food or good service. Yeah. So what you're referring to was your time at Starbucks from 2007, 2009. That's correct. Going to the workplace, I didn't really did too much research because I took the uh, KTM home frequently back in the day. So when I was studying in, at that time I was in college and I would walk past the Starbucks at Kafu in Subang. It's long since closed down. And I saw that there was a hiring banner. So I was like, okay, it's convenient. Starbucks is kind of cool. Why not work there? So going in there with zero expectations, I just wanted a job. But the first thing that really impressed me was on the first day of me getting in touch with them for a, an interview, they said, oh, okay, congratulations, you're hired. You're one of us now. You are a Starbucks partner. I'm like, partner, what does that mean? The store manager then, she gave me a, a very quick introduction to the concept of partners in Starbucks, where in the States, at one point in time, everyone that, that works in Starbucks has a share in the business. That is, you know, far from the truth, I found out later on. But it made me appreciate a company that want their ground crew to have a sort of buy-in to how well the business was doing. After that, I was introduced to, hey, this is our five or four culture. This is what we believe in working here. And I thought, wow, these are things that I find myself associating with. How to be welcoming, how to be sincere, how to take care of one another. I didn't expect work to be that way. I thought F&B is just come in, you make some coffee and then serve it and that's done. But what they built behind the scene was a very strong ecosystem where it relied on, hey, to be a part of this, you need to believe in these values. But they didn't tell you that directly. So to me, that was what I fell in love with. And I think apart from being at Starbucks, you also did the work and travel USA, which also had a huge impact on the way that you decided to enter into my work lab. Yes. Could you share a little about that whole experience? 
I love that you have done your research very thoroughly. <laughs> so when I was studying in Nottingham, Malaysian campus, I was out of place because a lot of people don't know this, but I'm a uni dropout. I dropped out once. I went to University of New South Wales in Australia when I was, I think, 19 or 20. But I dropped out after one and a half year and I came back. I work odd jobs. I work in the marketing office as an office boy. I worked in, you know, mechanic workshops. When I was closer to 25, 26 years old, that's when I figured I wanted to continue studying because I, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a degree. All my friends were moving forward in life. And so I went to University of Nottingham and I was finishing up my degree in mechanical engineering then. I found it hard to fit in because everyone else was around that 18, 19, you know, years old. The mentality is different. Yes. And there's this guy who's like 27 years old and starting uni again. So I started from scratch. I, I couldn't transfer any credits that I had from University of New South Wales. So during the first year of the summer holidays, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Everyone else was doing internship. Everyone else was, hey, we got to secure our internship and whatnot. And I couldn't care less. I didn't want to trap myself for three months. And I heard of this program called Work and Travel USA. And I said, yeah, I have a little bit of money saved up. I could afford it. Let's try it. So I think it was one of the best decisions I've made at that point in time in my life, despite all the bad decisions. I went there and I just wanted to not be at home because I knew if I stayed at home, uh, I would get a lot of nagging from my dad, from my parents. And I said, hey, I, I just want to get out. So this was a fun way to, to get out of being at home for, for three months. I remember I had to choose different locations to work in the States. And for those that don't know what work and travel is, it's very simple. You work in the States for three months. And before you head there, there'll be a job fair that is hosted in Malaysia. So American employers will come over and then they'll employ a bunch of us. And then we'll go over, work for three months. And then when you finish, you take the money that you've earned, you go travel around the States. You have to be a student or you just graduated within the year. And you have to be under 30. Yes. So that was a few of the uh, requirements. So I thought, okay, most of the places that were offered up were restaurants, cafes, chains. Like, so you got Applebee's, you got Starbucks, and a lot of them were also theme parks. Uh, you could work at, at Six Flags, but none of them really struck to me as, as something interesting. I was thinking, okay, at worst, I'll go back to work in Starbucks. Or theme parks. Wasn't that what you wanted to do at the time? So here's the thing. I was thinking that, I will probably spend the rest of my life there. <laughs> and I heard from seniors that had worked in theme parks that it's not what it's cooked up to be. So I was quite hesitant to go. One place stood out for me, it was Yellowstone. And it was the only national park that was up for selection at that point in time. And to me, Yellowstone, I was like, wait a minute, this place sounds so familiar. Where have I heard it before? And I did a bit of research and I realized that, hey, it is where Yogi Bear is from. So if we all grew up with a Yogi Bear, and Yogi Bear lives in a park called Jellystone. And Jellystone is a parody of, of Yellowstone. And I thought, wow, I'll be out in the wilderness. I'll be away from people. And I found that to be very inviting. So I took on the offer and I, I went to Yellowstone, not knowing what to expect, other than the fact that it's the backcountry. There will be wolves, there will be bears around in the park. And that is a super volcano. That's all I knew hitting over there. So you've never been to the States at the time? I've not been. I just knew that I needed time alone. I needed somewhere where it's different and, and it's not in a city. Everyone else, even some of my friends who, who joined the work and travel, they're like, why did you choose a park? Because it, it had the worst reputation in terms of making money and it had the worst reputation in terms of people going there in groups. So I wanted to go alone. So I went alone, but best time of my life. Absolutely. In terms of making friends, because I was there alone, I could, to some extent, reinvent myself. 
because I was the 26-year-old loser who was starting uni again. As much as people don't say that to my face, or it could be in my head, but that's what I felt during my time then. So I could, to some extent, reinvent myself. I made a bunch of new friends. I saw the world differently. When I went out hiking or camping in the backcountry, as they call it, I felt like I was one with nature again. When you go backcountry camping or hiking, there is a chance that you might die. There are grizzly bears, black bears, uh, wolves, and a host of bisons. Bisons can maul you to death. I mean, of course, if you take precaution, you learn how to navigate around these animals, but there's that chance. And when you go hiking alone in the wilderness and you are miles away from people. So this is one thing that I never experienced until I was there at that time. When you live in a city, when you live in KL or PJ, you're always around people. Even though you're in your own room, you're isolated, but you just that 10 meters out the door or you know, even five meters out the door, there is someone around you. However, when you go out there in Yellowstone, you know that you hike one mile in, most likely within that one mile radius, there's no one but you and nature. And that gave me a sense of solitude, a sense of peace that I never experienced before. And it was then that I decided that, hey, it is my life. I live by my rules. I do what I want. Because prior to that, I was still trying to fall back in line. I was still trying to fall back to be a part of the, what is normal in society. Uh, I was trying to play catch up. My friends at 26 years old, 27 years old. I think just like a lot of youngsters nowadays who are lost, who are very frustrated with where they are, especially with, you know, in, in, in a post-COVID world, I was going through that. So it gave me a lot of clarity that it didn't matter what anyone else thought about me. It was just between me and, for lack of better reference, and the creator. I'm an um, atheist, but at the time, the creator was nature. And to me, if I died there, you know, getting mauled by a bear or, or, or a bison, I was fine with it. Because when you look up in the skies, in the wilderness at night, where there is no city-like pollution, you see the stars, you see the Milky Way. And it's an experience that you will never get here in, in, in the city. You got to go drive very, very far out and, and have the light switch off to see space. And it's a, it's a very holistic experience. And that was when I knew we're just a speck floating in space. None of us matter. None of everything that people expect you to be matter. So as long as I was alive, I was going to live life by my way. Of course, without having to hurt anyone else, certain guidance of moral. And I think that was when a shift of who I was started happening. And I went back again to Yellowstone in my second year and in my third year of uni. Everyone was like, are you crazy? Why are you not doing your internship? When you graduate, you have no job. I was like, no, man. That's where the answer is. That's where I want to be. And I mean, my first year, I didn't have the answer yet, but I knew there was a draw there. So I, I kept going back every year. So by the time I, I finished my third year in uni, uh, I also finished my last year in the States in Yellowstone. But I walked out of it, or I graduated with a sense of secureness. I'm only answerable to myself that nothing can stop me from doing what I want. Although I didn't know what I wanted to do then. That was very heavy stuff. I might not be portraying it or, or conveying it as I felt at that time, but it was definitely a turning point in my life. It was a soul-searching experience that I never knew I needed, that I never knew was something that people should do. I walked out of uni not having a burden of, hey, I need to find a job right now. Um, I, I need to do this. I need to do that. 
But that was what I was carrying when I went into uni. It was very heavy burden that I need to figure my life out. I need to sort this out. I need to be normal again. Then I realized I didn't need to be normal. So you left and you didn't feel that pressure of being like everyone else. But at the same time, I understand you were entering to some business ventures prior to my Burger Lab. I think there was like a Groupon concept. Yeah. So there's two businesses that I was involved in. The first one was a t-shirt business. So one part of my uni life in Nottingham that I really, really appreciate was playing Ultimate Frisbee. So I met a bunch of great friends there. They are still within my circle of friends. And Ultimate Frisbee is a game that is not very popular. And when you talk to people about it, they're like, what is that? You play with the dogs. But I like the fact that it was not popular. I like the fact that it was uh, very intensive. It was a game that required a lot of skill, but a lot of people make fun of it. A lot of people belittle it. Uh, but I found joy in that game because one thing about the Ultimate Frisbee community is they don't feel like they are tied to what is expected of them. Because when you play badminton, you play basketball, I, I do enjoy those games as well, but there's a sense of normalcy. Like everyone plays it. When you, what, but Ultimate Frisbee, there's just that sense of freedom. There's that sense of camaraderie. Now, one thing about Ultimate Frisbee is that there's no referee. So even if there's a competition, there's no refereeing. A lot of it is self-refereeing. So one of the things that I learned playing Ultimate Frisbee is how do you practice that sense of sportsmanship? People talk about sportsmanship all the time. But in Frisbee, you see it in action. When someone accidentally whacks your hand, when you're trying to throw the disc, someone whacks your hand, it's a foul. And the two of that person needs to talk it out to say, hey, what happened? I tried to do this and, and you did this. I haven't released this yet. So I've never seen that in any other sport. So to me, I love the sport. I love the people that came with the sport because it attracted a very unique group of people. I, I don't know how to explain it. It's a bunch of rebels. It's a bunch of people who, who were just different. So I love Frisbee so much. I realized that, hey, everyone's wearing like basketball jerseys. They're wearing soccer jersey. No one is wearing apparels for Frisbee. So I said, hey, why not design Frisbee jerseys so that people can feel proud of the sport that they love. So that was my first foray into running a business. It was just printing t-shirts and then trying to get customers to buy it. But because it was quite unique, no one else was doing it. Business was fairly decent. I was able to sell shirts all the way to UK and the, and the States as well at that point in time. So I was having a decent income even when I was in uni. It, it was also in the Ultimate Frisbee Club circle that I met Weekend, one of my partners uh, in the business. Weekend was studying finance and accounting in uh, Nottingham at that time. And he played Frisbee and we got along really well. And I was like, hey, do you want to sell t-shirts with me? And we kind of were, were in a bit of a small joint venture thing unofficially. So that was how we got into business. And then when we graduated, I was like, okay, I know that I didn't want to be an engineer anymore. The moment I graduated, I knew I didn't want to be an engineer. But your dad didn't know this. He was like pushing you to apply. Like oh yeah, he was uh, pushing me to apply for jobs. And I was like, yeah, I, I sent out a bunch of resume, but I sent out zero. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I sent out zero. I knew that if I started doing that, I would be forced down a path that I didn't want to. So I, I, I did lie to my parents uh, that I was uh, looking for a job outside to be an engineer. But I was to some extent, also desperately trying to find a way to find something meaningful for myself that I can do for the rest of my life. One of the things that I brought home with me from my US trip was actually Groupon. So in my last three days from before departing Seattle on my final year, I learned of this app called Groupon. And again, I'm very attracted to things that is about community. Well, you can group buy. 
a bunch of people come together telling the restaurant, hey, we're going to buy a thousand of that voucher. You're going to give us five bucks off or 10 bucks off. And I was like, oh man, that's such a cool idea. Of course, at that time, I didn't know how bad it was for business. <laughs> that, that model sucks for businesses. But the, the point is, I was attracted to that model and I came back and I spoke to Wicked and said, hey, there's this thing going on in the States. It's, it's called Groupon. It's a big deal. We should do something like that. But with a twist. So... We started researching on what we had to do. Then we realized that you did have to develop things from the start. And this is like 2000, I don't know, 2010, 2011. There was no such thing as a startup scene. No one really knows what to do, except for Joao Neo. He, he did really well after that. At that time, all we knew was, okay, we want to develop an app. And we were doing our research and we realized, hey, you can actually buy a ready-made coupon app. And all you need to do is plug in your brand name. It sounded really good as a solution. But in hindsight, it was the worst decision ever because you were tied down to whatever that software was. There was no way to change it. So that was our little foray into the app business because three months in, we ran out of money. We were outplayed. We were outpivoted. So we were one of the first, I dare say, one of the first four coupon clones, uh, including Joel's uh, Group Small, I believe that was called that then. But everyone else that bought into that model in the beginning, they had firepower. They had money. Just like how Grab is now and Foodpanda, where they have money, they have investors money where they could pump a lot of money into. It's a chicken and egg thing. You need merchants to be on board. You need a user base to purchase the coupons. You need a lot of marketing. And back in the days, if you sign up and you refer to your friends, you have a chance to win iPhones and whatnot. But for us, we had like a 6,000 ringgit budget. We can't do anything with it. It was a humbling lesson, but I think each of us at that time had a different takeaway on the business fail. But to me, it was, oh, wow, the big boys play differently. And if you are just going to skim the surface of, of that industry or skim the surface of, of that business model, it's very hard to, to uh, make the cut. So it was very humbling, but I was like, okay, fine. Immediately, the moment we saw them throwing deals and doing things the way they were doing and growing and the scale that they were growing, we knew we were outplayed. There was no way we could catch up. But again... That's and learn. And then after that, so we quit the business and then we, we went about searching for what we personally wanted to do. He went to the States for six months or was it a year for an internship program. I was just working at Rabin Bag, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Actually, Rabin Bag was closer to the end of my journey. So at the time, you did not feel like you wanted to join a company. It's not like you were in the illusion of, oh, I can do a startup. It's going to be glamorous and fun. You knew the reality of it. I knew the reality of it, but I was too stupid to, to know that that it was that difficult. At the time, it was just, okay, yeah, this just wasn't my thing. I'm just going to move on. I mean, thankfully, my, the money that I saved from working in, in the States, I actually saved up a majority of my money from the three years of, of being there. So I was able to tahana. I was able to sustain myself while, while trying to find out what is there to do. So I was working at this place called Caffeinis in KL, who was a friend of a friend because they knew that I had like a Starbucks background and I was doing latte art. And back in the days, it wasn't really popular. So they hired me. So I was just like spending my time there trying to figure out what to do. And Hailin and Kyung came along and they said, hey, we're opening up this cafe called Ray Pinback. And would you like to be our first barista? And I was like, oh, wow. And Hailin is, is my friend from University of New South Wales days the one that I dropped out of. But we remained friends throughout the years and she saw me doing coffee and whatnot. She said, hey, why, why don't you come help us set up the bar? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure, why not? And I was getting tired of working at Cafe Nice as well. So I was the first barista. And when I was at that stage, me and my other partner, Changming, who, who I, I have been talking while I was in Cafe Nice, that, hey, let's do something together. 
because I knew he was working as an engineer, he was working as a draftsman, uh, but he wasn't too happy with where he was. So I was like, hey, you want to start something together? I'm working in the cafe business. I seem to like it. I, I seem to have a hang of it. Would you like to start a cafe? Uh, he said, yeah, let me think about it. Uh, so I went into Rabin Mac. And this was in 2011, somewhere in November. Uh, that's when they, they started the business. And I told them, hey, I want to open a cafe myself too. And I felt that I had to be honest with them rather than making them feel like I'm just there to, to just steal ideas from them. But I said, hey, I'm going to help you guys out. But at the same time, this is something that I want to do down the line. And they were understanding. They were like, yeah, no, no, no worries. We're, we're friends anyway. So in between all that, me working part-time in, in Red Bean Bag and, and trying to figure out how to convince Changming to hop onto this idea I have about starting our own cafe. Yeah, he joined you at the kitchen as well eventually. Yes, eventually we said, hey, why don't you work in the kitchen and learn a thing or two about how to run a kitchen? And he did that. So we were basically, for lack of a better word, using Red Bean Bag as a internship, I guess, <laughs> to learn. Because prior to that, when you are working for a place and you only see it as a passing stage, you aren't there to learn. All you're, you're there is, hey, I'm going to do my job, I'm going to earn money, I'm going to get out. But that period of time when we were in there, it was, hey, we're going to see ourselves as bosses of our own cafe and what are the things that we have to face? Because when you're working as an employee, the problems that you can think of or the problems that you envision are very different from running the business. Because sometimes you need to pull yourself out and go like, wait a minute, you have a staff here who is while working with you plotting to start his own business. <laughs> it was a very interesting phase. Uh, again, Kyung and Lin has been very generous with their time. With, they were just supportive. They were like, what? I understand this is just a stage for you. As long as you help us, we're happy to help you back. So I'm very, very grateful for that. So how did it evolve into a burger? How did the cafe evolve into a burger? So me and Chaming, we were out talking to suppliers, distributors, and we realized that, and I'm sure in your research, you would have found this. We realized that a lot of people were were in the midst of planning to open cafes. Either we bump into them or suppliers or distributors were giving hints to say, hey, I've got a few clients buying this and that. So we got hints that in the next 12 months, a lot of cafes are going to pop up. That surprised me when I did my research and I thought, why though? Why is everyone at the time wanting to open a cafe, do you think? It was a third wave. So that was the time when going to a cafe was a cool. I don't know if you know, but 2013, there was a wave of cafes blossoming everywhere. A lot of them stayed. That's the good news. A lot of them stayed. Thankfully, it wasn't a time like bubble tea. The cafe business bloomed because it was the right time as well. I think people at the time matured enough and there was a group of people that was coming back from Australia, UK and other foreign countries where coffee drinking was a culture. So people wanted that coffee drinking culture. And Starbucks was around long enough to have developed that habit as well. And people are going like, yeah, Starbucks is shit, right? I want something a bit more artisanal. And there were a few pioneers in this market that really led at the, the, the forefront of third wave. Artisanal coffee, but within the lingo, it's called third wave co coffee. First wave is your kopitiam. Second wave is the Starbucks. They make coffee glorified. As much as people complain, why are people you know, paying 16 ringgit for a frappuccino? Business was booming for Starbucks. So again, I'll share a little bit about how we went into the third wave of burgers accidentally as well. It was the right time. We figured out, hey, cafe might not be the business we want to go into because we see a lot of competition popping up. We say, how can we pivot? So... There's a lot of stories in between. We went to Taiwan because we went to Taiwan to source for coffee, actually, but we ended up eating a lot of burgers there as well. Uh, and it came to a point where we were just saying, hey, why do we do burgers? Because I kept sharing about my experiences when I was in the States and eating in and out burger. In Taiwan, we loved the burger scene there so much. We're like, why don't we just do 
burgers. In fact, I didn't want to give up the coffee uh, dream yet and say, why don't we do coffee and burgers? We just built a brand that is just coffee and burgers. Although for the longest time, we couldn't put our head into it to say, yeah, coffee and burgers is a weird combination. And, and in the end, thankfully, we abandoned the coffee part because we keep saying it's a waste that I let go of that talent that I had at the time, which is making great coffee. But we were like, you know what, let's focus on just one product. And, and we decided and hunkered down on, on just burgers. So when we decided that we were going to do burgers, and this is at this point in time, it was just me and Chowming only. We were doing research and we, we dug up things that I admired about In-N-Out. And then we realized that, oh, In-N-Out is only on the West Coast. Right? On the East Coast, there is another brand called Shake Shack, uh, which is like a huge deal. And people on, on the East Coast and West Coast are always fighting who has the best burger. But I've never tried Shake Shack. All I knew was there was a legendary queue. And then I was thinking, wait a minute, isn't we get in New York? And you sent him that? Well, yeah, I said, we get. have you heard of Shake Shack? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long queue every other day, but I haven't been. I'm like, what's wrong with you? So Weekend is not a food person. He eat to live, I live to eat. Okay. <laughs> so that's the difference between me and Weekend. Uh, anyway, so we call Weekend and say, hey, Weekend, check out this burger joint in New York, Shake Shack, and let us know what you think of it. It's really popular. I told him, hey, me and Chaming wants to open up a burger joint in Malaysia that is similar to In-N-Out and Shake Shack. Since he has not tried In-N-Out, I figured Shake Shack would be a reference point. So he said, okay, wait, 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 let me go try and then see what the fuss is all about. So he went there, he tried. I asked, how's the burger? He said, oh, burger? I ate their hot dogs. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I was like, okay, don't worry about the burgers, whether it's tasty or not, but do you think their business model is something that we can replicate here in Malaysia? He gave it a thought and he said, okay, and he cut short his internship, I believe, to come back. At least that was a story told to date. <laughs> he came back. It's a lot of gray area. I mean, when you are starting something, there's a lot of legends or myth that builds as the years go by. But in our memory, he cut short his internship to come back to help start our Shake Shack in Malaysia. That one visit to try something that wasn't a burger convinced him that it was something he wanted to tag on. Yeah, he didn't even try the burgers. <laughs> but he never went back. <laughs> Yeah, but the, the business model was what he was looking at. Again, he's that business guy. So he came back and then it was his first time meeting Chaming. Chaming's first time meeting Weekend. The two of them were not sure of each other. And I had to convince them that, no, guys, trust me, this guy is good. Hey, trust me, this guy is good. I mean, I knew both of them for at least four years at a point in time. So I felt that I could trust them and I was trying to convince them of each other. So the first thing that Weekend did when he came back was that, okay, so what have you guys done so far? We're like, yeah, we've done a few burger testing at home, serving ourselves. He's like, yeah, that's just nonsense. And this is like, again, where we get is at his strongest. Um, he's a very business-minded person. So he immediately got hunkered down because me and Changming, while we are engineers, we have no business in running a business. <laughs> and we were food guys as well. I mean, we love cooking. So we get said, all right, you guys are working in Red Bean Bag right now. At that time, uh, Red Bean Bag wasn't open for dinner. They were only a brunch place. He's like, why don't you just ask them if you could borrow their kitchen? Because if you cook at home... Yeah, it tastes great and all, but it's not a commercial kitchen. We spoke to Hailin and Kyung and said, hey, we want to do a burger joint. Can we rent your restaurant? And the answer was almost immediate. Yeah, no problem. And I said, okay, so what's the fee? We kind of have a tight budget. He said, uh, friend price, uh, one night, 100 ringgit. I'm like, what? And that also shaped us into who we were. 
we try to help out as many smaller brands uh, or startups as we can. Back in the days, right now, a little bit more difficult because the business is like a machine. It's hard to dismantle it. Uh, but we, we try to like nowadays, uh, if anyone wants to pop up their yeah, startup bakery in front of a shop, we, we do allow them. Like right now, we have two small bakers that are popped up at today, OUG and Sunway, just to sell their wares, just so that they can get a bit of exposure because we have that line. So anyway, that was where I learned about compassion towards each other in the industry supporting one another. And that's what Hailin and Kyung really did for us there. Was that uncommon? So what we learned was that it was. In the F&B industry, a lot of times, and this is 2012, right? Now it's a lot better. Back in the days, when you try to get close to them, they'll be like, what do you want? Like, what, are you trying to steal my secret? Are you trying to... It's a very backstabby feel kind of uh, industry. But I think with the third wave coffee coming in, with communication being so much more easier on the internet, I think community started growing and the support started being there. And I think also people who experience kindness, like how we experienced it from Hailin and Kyung, we started doing it to other people and in hopes that, that pays it forward as well. And I, I like to think that we were part of a small gear in, in a bigger machinery where kindness is constantly being pushed forward to. So anyway, we decided, okay, let's try out the burger concept and get some friends in and try our products. So in, I think, February or January of 2012, we did our first R&D session with real-life audiences. Oh, it was chaos. It was really chaos. We burned stuff. We almost burned the kitchen down, in fact. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. However, it really gave us an insight into what we were getting ourselves into. So we get, and I'm sure you've heard of this, introduced us to the idea of uh, the Lean Startup. We said, okay, guys, we're going to chip in X amount of dollars, and then we're going to spend... Uh, how much per R&D and with the money that we have at the end of it we need to say whether we want to do this business rather than forking out a huge sum of money and then opening up the business and then wish for the best which is what happened in our previous business at the time we had less money so we, we, we put in quite a fair bit and then we, we, we flopped coming back to Burger Lab the initial stages so we did a lot of R&D 10 sessions but every session we improved very quickly Thanks to the fact that we had Ryan, who is the chef of uh, Red Bean Bag, to guide us and laugh at us on the side. <laughs> so what were the things that you were not doing? I mean, we didn't. So, for example, our patty. Our patty is fairly unique to this day. It doesn't taste like anyone else's patty because of this technique that Ryan taught us, which is a pain in the ass. He warned us, he said, this technique at tissue, you can make small batch burgers, but it's going to taste really good. But it's impossible to make in the last batch. But to this day, we still do it. It's like a secret. That no, it's not a secret. So if anyone here that makes a burger, it will be buy meat, buy fat, and then you buy your herbs and whatever seasoning you want, and then you mix it in. Anyone can do that. So what he taught us to do was, how do you create flavors in the fat that you're going to put into the burger? So we bought fat and we cooked the fat. Uh, in, it's a process called rendering the fat. And in the process of rendering the fat, you add on a lot of aromatics and the fat will absorb. Because a lot of times people don't know the juiciness that you, you like from a burger is the fat. The flavors that you love from meat is the fat. And the meat generally don't have too much taste. The fat is what gives it taste. And what he taught us was how to amplify the flavor of the fat. Now, I'm quite sure you have seen rosemary oil or lemon oil that is sold in supermarket shelves. Lemon does not have oil. Uh, rosemary does not have oil. Maybe that's a little bit, but it's not enough you know, for a whole jar. So what they do is they infuse 
So oil is a very good medium to carry flavor. So if you put a stick of rosemary in oil, like after one week, your oil is very fragrant. That's how you make garlic oil as well. So in that same ideology, we changed the flavor of our fat by putting in the aromatics that we want, whether it's garlic, whether it's onion, whether it's star anise, whether it's black pepper, salt, and so on. So that when people bite into our burgers, that flavor comes through. That beef fat is amplified, right? With layers of flavor. So that's our secret. But for anyone that has rendered fat before, you would know that it's a very painstaking process. And that's why scaling it up would be... So you can't do it with machines to infuse? I mean, you do do it with machines. It's just a very long, smelly process. Over that process of 10 pop-ups, as I understand it, you slowly began to find that thing that made you stand out. I really like how you did to get feedback from people. You were doing a survey and also asking people to pay. Uh, yeah. So with that, I think Weekend was the one who, who suggested it. Because when you put out a survey, hey, if I charge this at 15 ringgit, would you pay for it? Most people, they would be nice enough to say yes. But there's a difference when it comes to actually forking out the money. So we had to do the test where, okay, they fill out the form, but what they didn't know is when they leave, we're going to put a little cashier there that says, hey, if uh, you said you were going to pay, here's the you know tip jar. You can put your money in. Uh, that's when we realized that when people say they're willing to pay and whether they're really willing to pay is, is two different things. So we knew that we had to up our product to a level where people felt that, hey, they were getting something of value. And over that 10 R&D session, thankfully, we hit some jackpots. We were very lucky for sure. And we came up with a few recipes that people felt was different, unique, and something that they haven't seen before. The charcoal burger or the charcoal buns were actually invented closer to the seven or eight session uh, because in the beginning it was the regular brown, white buns. And I knew that I wanted to do a differentiation because we knew that with the money we had, because we tried to talk to different restaurateurs and those that were willing to talk were saying, you need runway, you need a, a, a capital that allows you to give you that six months to one year runway because your business is not going to take off from day one. Do you mind sharing how much that was? It depends. It depends on your business. So we were told, if you're going to take 250000 to start your business, make sure you have another 250000 in your bank to, to run the business for the first one year without having to raise more capital or without having to run out money. Well, we didn't have that. We basically said, um, we, we got to make this work. Again, it was a very naive ideology. Honestly, if Burger Lab didn't take off the way it did, we would be probably out of business within like six months. So we raised 250000 among ourselves and uh, some friends. And we opened up in uh, Burger Lab Sea Park. And thankfully, for whatever reason it was, all the X factors that came to be put us in a spotlight and we never looked back from there. I mean, we were gaining so much traction because of the black buns uh, to the point where Star wanted to talk to us before we even opened. I got a call and she's like, oh, I'm Nadira from the Star. I would like to ask about your shop, how long you've been open? Because a lot of people were sharing. And I think that was like a, a rare instance of trending back in the days. And we were like, oh, we aren't even open yet. The, the last few sessions of our R&D in February, we were able to build up the hype up until July when we opened. Because in that few months in between, people were still like, hey, where can I get this? How were you building the hype though? Because I think when you launched, you had 500 followers already on Instagram at the time. Yeah. And back in the days, that was, that was tough. It was a lot of good luck. It was a lot of dumb luck. We just did the right things without knowing it. But again, we understood what happened and we definitely consciously replicate that over the years. Uh, but at that time, it was just 
the shock factor of the buns, the, the creativity of the recipes that we were putting out, how we interacted with our friends or, or fans on social media was different. Because eight years back, there was no guideline to how to use social media. What was the norm then? A lot of businesses sounded like businesses. Everyone wanted to sound corporate-ish. Everyone wanted to sound just professional. But we didn't do that. We didn't know. We used Facebook as if we were using our own Facebook. And I think that stood out. People were like, oh, wow, who's this bunch of young kids um, that's, that's trying to start this Black Burger revolution? And I think that spoke to people um, to some degree where they felt that we were like some kind of rebel. We were just a bunch of good guys um, trying to make it out there. And the support came pouring in. And thankfully, the burgers tasted decent. People were happy to pay for that price. And... With how hype is nowadays, it's still a thing that we see now, not in our brand, but in other people's brand as well, that once the hype train, as they call it, gets going, there's just no explanation to it. People will queue up just because other people are queuing up. Uh, someone made a joke about this before where Asians, they would see a line and they would say, it's probably something good. Let's go queue up and figure out what it is later. I'm guilty of that too. <laughs> <laughs> And I think one of the things that was going for you is that the black bands was so Instagrammable at a time where Instagrammable things were just starting to take off. And you were yes. the one who discovered the whole charcoal powder thing that makes it so distinctive. Well, here's the thing. I think a couple months back before we experimented with charcoal, we were on a trip with our friends and uh, someone ordered a charcoal sandwich. So it was already out there, but charcoal bread were more of loaf rather than bun but it was rare one or two cafes carried it and then japanese bakeries do sell it but it wasn't hype we were definitely not in the world uh, in malaysia we were definitely the first to do charcoal buns and present it as a staple on our menu we got inspiration to do the burger in the charcoal style from a french burger joint that I don't think exists anymore. But it was a Star Wars theme burger, naturally, the dark side. And they made that. But I thought it looked pretty good at the time. And I said, we should try making ours. But also coincidentally, I was at a bakery and then, you know, I saw the powder and I just asked what it was. And I was like, oh, okay, this is what I saw online. Because I didn't know they were using charcoal. And we tried to write to the French guy, but there was no reply. It was just a lot of happy accidents. I think my life can be described as a lot of happy accidents. I don't want to jinx it, but a lot of times when I desire something, the universe gives. Not directly, but in some form. And, and you got to be smart enough to derive some form of connection and go for it. So I, I know I saw the Black Burger. In fact, I didn't think that it was going to work. Oh. At the time, it was still like, is that what we want to do? Will people accept it? In France, it wasn't a big deal. No one really cared about it. But it was at the back of my head. And then I think a couple of weeks after that, that was when I saw it, charcoal powder. And that's when I started realizing there's a pattern in my life. And then maybe it exists in other people's life. I've been quite lucky where if I want to go towards a certain direction, certain doors will start opening up. I think it's also an awareness. You're open to trying different things and being different. And being aware of those opportunities. And I think one of the things that unexpected opportunities that really helped you was Sean from Eat Drink KL. He also came and tried out and that also contributed to the whole boom. I didn't know who Eat Drink KL was before this. So he came in as our third customer, I believe. And our first day was a mess. Our first day was absolute mess. We were knackered. We were tired. 
the first day, friends and whatnot came, but we, we were a lot more tired than we expected to be. We went to one of the mamak nearby. Lah. And I remember 11, 11.30, people started sending links to Idrin KL. And I was like, who's Idrin KL? It's like, oh, he's one of the biggest bloggers in the food scene. And I was like, shit, because I was afraid that it was going to be a bad review. Number one. And I'm like, it's our first day. We hardly got, you know, the groove going. It's not going to be a fair review. I kept saying that. <laughs> but while the page was loading, and this is, you know, 2012, it took a while before the page loaded, <laughs> uh, loaded. We started reading. And I think I still remember, he called one of our burgers the Mona Lisa of burgers. And I was like, wow, absolutely flattered. Absolutely just humble. But at the time I knew that our burgers were shit. Because that day, we made a lot of mistakes. Oh, no. Like, the burgers were not sticking. I mean, this is an analogy I make a, a lot of time. When you cook rice for four person versus you cook rice for 100 people, you're not going to get the same quality of rice because scaling up is just not that easy. Of course, I'm talking as a layman. If you get the anti nasi lemak that makes, you know, nasi lemak for thousands of people, it's not a problem for them. So that was what we faced. On the first day of opening, we were serving almost 100 plus burgers, where else the maximum amount of burgers we've ever served before that was 25 to 30. So it was a huge leap. And when I was cooking the patty uh, on that day, I was like, man, it's just not the texture that I want it to be. And he was a third customer. So that means he was still getting my trial patty where I was trying to figure out what's the temperature to cook it at and whatnot. But again, he gave us a, a very glowing review, which I will forever be, be grateful for because again, it's because of his that we started getting attraction of people coming. And of course, the star came one week after our opening, did a review, gave us a three-page color ad, and that just went crazy. So these were things that we were very thankful for. And I'm, I'm sure there are cafes and restaurants that have experienced this, but maybe not through the same medium as I did. Now you have all those food Instagram or Facebook pages, like KL Foodie and Eat, Pray, Love, the likes of them, where one post can really shoot you to stardom, right? But there's a pros and cons to this kind of fame. A lot of restaurants can't live up to their standard when they get swamped. And we didn't. Because they scaled too fast beyond what they scale could. They too fast. Yes, your service is not going to be on point. You won't get to talk to everyone. Uh, expectations will be out of the world. But thankfully, in this day and age, people won't have learned how to manage their expectations a little bit. But back in the days when a blog or a, a newspaper say you're good, I don't know, they expect orgasm when they bite into your food <laughs> so we, we had to manage that so a lot of our social media in the early days was just being very thankful and, and, and apology for any mistakes made that day so it was just a lot of that but thankfully we have a good set of hits uh, among us and we were able to not rush things as well would you imagine this we open at five o'clock and the reason why we open at five is because in the morning we were busy preparing our, our ingredients you open at five you sell it at seven Customers were pissed, although our, our, our official time was 5 to 10, but at 7 o'clock, so loud, guys, because there was a queue outside the door at 4 p.m., right? and people were waiting, queuing for up to an hour and a half just to pay, and then another hour to wait for their burgers. It was insane. Well, we were definitely happy about that, but at the back of my head, it was an unsustainable business. And at one point, we rushed it. We were like, okay. Right now, we are making 200 burgers. Let's push it to 300 because there's so many people. We can't be a business that closes at 7 p.m. Customers are going to not come after 7 p.m. It becomes a habit. So we push to make 300 burgers at one point. 
uh, this is not an exact number, but the quality went off like crazy. I won't go into the details, but definitely it wasn't where we wanted to be. And before opening up Burger Lab, I was a big fan of Kitchen Nightmares, uh, Gordon Ramsay. And I was watching Gordon Ramsay a lot before we opened. And it basically taught me about what to do and what not to do in a restaurant. So we set a fairly high standard despite not being culinarily trained. And I pulled a Gordon Ramsay in a sense where we, we threw all 300 patties away. At 5.15 or 5.20, I realized that it was off. The, the patty was just off. I said, guys, shut down. We we're shutting down today. We cannot serve this. Not at this stage. This was like one month since our opening. And we sat down. We, we talked about it. Who do we want to be? Because we didn't ask for this. And we are definitely thankful for the crowd that is coming in. But we realized when we sat down, because in all the excitement, one would go like, hey, let's milk this. Let's make as much money as possible. But we agreed as a team to say that we're going to just do what we can. We're not going to sell more than we can produce. So production can be scaled up with the right equipment, with the right storage. But when your storage is meant to store, let's say, 100 kg of meat, or when you store 150 kg of meat, the air circulation is not proper, your meat starts going bad. Those are the issues that pop up. And a lot of people don't see, don't understand that. In fact, we got scolded a lot. How, how do you run a business when you close that so early? But Thankfully, we had that discipline back then and it kind of set the tone for who we are when it came to our food. We would never serve subpar food that we're not happy with. But of course, those were the days when we, the co-founders, were there. Now, we do set a very strict SOP for the team to follow, but there are days where um, the team do fall off the grid and, and might not be adhering to the best of standards. But there's no discussion when it comes to expired product. If it's gone bad, it's out the window. Then we'll talk about yeah, ordering behavior or they're ordering uh, SOP. And that's where we need to work on because sometimes younger managers are a little bit over eager and the way they think is, oh, why do I need to order so many times in a week? I just order one time. But coming back to where we started, thankfully, the team were able to not be too greedy and say, we want to be a business where we only serve food that we are happy to eat ourselves and not just do it for the money's sake. And speaking of money, we were also offered a lot of franchising or licensing opportunity when we first started. One guy came up to us and said, hey, I've got two million ringgit to invest in you guys, but I want to open four stores in a year and a half or two years. At the time, I found it really hard to say no to two million ringgit. <laughs> but we did. We talked it out and said, look, there's just no way um, that we can open four stores without diluting you know, our culture. Because I knew what I got from Starbucks and what I wanted to transfer everything that was good into Burger Lab. And we were also exposed to a lot of good books at the time around uh, building value for your team and building culture. And culture, one of the biggest takeaway I, I had at the time was that culture is not built in a short period of time. Culture is not having a pool table in your office. It's not having a pantry filled with food. Culture is something that everyone's aligned with. It's a set of values that everyone says, hey, this is who we are and this is how we're going to behave. And this is what dictates how we would do business. So culture was something that you were very, you were focused on right from the start. So the term geeks, was that it started from day one? No, I think the word geek came after a couple of months when we were able to take a breather and just kind of realign everything and start slowly penning down our thoughts and what our values are, what our mission is. And that's how, how, how things shaped up much later on. But again, it's not like we had an experience running an F&B business before that. So from day one, it was just trying to figure things out. Every day was just trying to figure things out. Let's say if you ask me to open a restaurant right now, 
it will be more stable. I would have the missions, the values, at least all stated, the branding is all there. It evolves over time. Yeah, back in the days, it was just a lot of self-discovery. It was a lot of just aligning um, our values because there were times where our values did not align. For example, the day that I wanted to close, there was a bit of a tiff on whether that was the right strategy because the team was like, you know what, just sell first, then to be close tomorrow. Lah. Right now, food is already produced. And the food wasn't bad. It was just slightly off, but I wasn't happy to serve it. So I said, look, I'll take responsibility for it. I'll deduct my pay if, if it need to. Looking back, we, we definitely came a long way. And, and the startup journey is definitely one where no amount of advice would be comparable to the real-life experience that you get running the business underground. I mean, one of the things when I was asking people, I'm going to interview the one of the founders of my burger labs and what other things do you want me to ask? And the things that people always picked up was always the culture. They will always say, oh, every time I go to any of these shops, they seem to be like the same people, the same kind of values. They're always smiling and they always found it so curious. And it's clear that it's something that's so integral. As I was doing my research, that you deliberately look for people who align with your values. And I wonder if you could share a little of how you found, because I understand you have 10 values and you don't really care so much about the CV, but more the person. So I think that we are able to be pickier in terms of hiring people because you talk to restaurants, the biggest challenge is hiring people. And that's why a lot of people go down the road of just hiring foreigners. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we, from day one, made a conscious effort to hire as locally as possible. So because of the brand being what it is, when we first started, it was us three. Then we told, we put a word out there. And these are friends who are in, either still in uni, our Frisbee friends, who are still in uni or going through summer holiday at that time. We said, hey guys, we are opening up a burger joint. We need help. Who wants to come and work for fun? I mean, we'll pay you guys. And that's how we accidentally got a bunch of very young, energetic people in the kitchen and, and serving people. And at that time, we didn't think that it was going to be long-term. At the time, we were thinking our workforce would most likely be 50% foreigners, 50% locals. And we say once the three months has passed, then we figure out how things would be. But for the first three months, because it was holiday and there was a university holiday, so we, we knew we had our friends working with us for, for the first three months. Now, in that three months, what we learned was that that energy that came from this group of 20 plus minus year old was something that people were attracted to. It was just an a sense of raw energy that people were responding to. And because we were friends, we were having fun, we were laughing, we were just dicking around. And I think that became a part of who we were as well. We don't just work hard, we play hard as well. And because of us building that environment and the customers that came in happened to be college students as well, they were like, oh, this place looks cool. Popular for their burgers, that's trending, is hip. And the people who work here are actually having fun. And that's when the applicants started coming. And we go like, wow, we have more applicants than we need. So that's where the transition from 50-50 became, hey, we can make this into a almost 100% uh, student-based uh, workforce. We started thinking, what are students looking for? Now, why I decided to work with students is very simple. At that point in time, I realized a lot of people, either the bosses or the full-time staffs, that is working in the restaurant, after the first year, the standards of service starts dropping because in FMB Malaysia, it is a thankless job. People expect to be served. You say thank you, they might not even acknowledge you. And this is, again, back in the days, that's how bad things were. I tried to find a hack to resolve that issue. I don't want my staff 
where after a year, they feel like this is a dread, that they don't want to come to work, that they treat customers as if they are a nuisance. Because I've been on the other side of the table where I've liked a certain restaurant. I go there every week, every month. And then over time, I can see the same people. They start not to care. So that's when I found the hack. Because thinking back to my Yellowstone days, where during summertime, I'm working there for a short period of time. There were a lot of students from all around the world and even American students during summertime. Everyone's energetic. Everyone hates their job. But because it's a group of young, like-minded people, when they are in the zone, they bounce their energy off each other. And it comes off as being lively. And that was my, my little hack. I said, okay, if we can get a group of students to work here as our main core base, we will always have this level of energy. And over the years, it evolved into, okay, we've got this down pat. People who work with us will tell their younger cousins or their younger brothers or sisters to work with us because they had such a good time here. They had a good time discovering themselves, learning about themselves, growing into a young adult. And we realized we could formulate this and and turn this into a program. And that's what our hiring program became. It became a marketing campaign to show, hey, if you graduated from five and if you're going to college and you want to have an age over your peers, work retail. Now, if you work with us, these are the things that you will learn. And this is how you will grow when you're working with us. We have testimonials of people who have worked with us before. Now, I I don't dare say everyone that worked with us was 100% happy. But for the majority part of it, I dare say that a lot of people found value in their time with us. We have parents coming to thank us for whipping their child into shape. Oh, he doesn't clean his room. Now he comes back, he'll help out in the kitchen, he'll clean his room. I mean, there are little adult growths like that. And we put in that into the structure of working in Berry Lab. So what were the things you were incorporating? Number one, we realized that if you get part-timers to work in a cafe or any other restaurant, they are only hired for one thing. And that can be the server, the waiter, or working in a kitchen. But they only do one thing. A lot of times, they aren't entrusted with more tasks. So the Burger Lab system is that you will start on the assembly line. As you go, you are expected to work at every different station. There is a skill set that comes along with it. For example, uh, assembly line is all about being precise. It's about following orders. It's about understanding what the customer wants and giving them what they want. Then... The fryer is about timing. Uh, so you learn about multitasking. So say, for example, beef and chicken cooks at different time. If there's an order of beef and chicken in the same t- on the same ticket, you got to fry uh, the chicken first because that takes longer to cook. And then you fry the, the beef. So it's a lot of time management. And then maybe let's say you go work as a cashier. Cashier is about selling. You practice your selling skill, ability to convince people to buy things. And Maybe as a front of house, as a server, you, you work your communication skills. In fact, we get them to do the MBTI test before they join us. We basically seek out whether they are introverts or extroverts. And then introverts, generally, we don't put them in front of customers, but we will encourage them. We say, hey, you won't enough time with us. You are mostly in the kitchen. Do you want to work on your skill to communicate with people? So instead of saying, hey, you go work in the front of house right now, talk to customers, learn how to talk to customers. The first thing that most young people will feel is fear and resentment. Why are you forcing me to do something I don't want? If everything is about, hey, would you like to learn this? Very rarely do they say no, because it becomes a challenge. It becomes a, hey, I can be better. And uh, of course, we, we do have a lot of things in place. Like before the shift, we have a pledge. We promise to take care of each other. So there's a lot of things that while they might hate it, or they might think, oh, this is like really boring home and stuff, but it becomes ingrained in them. So learning to grow from day one is something that they hear a lot. 
but when it comes to push a shelf and they are pushed into a position to to try something new they will usually do it so when everyone else around you is getting acknowledged for uh, and we gamify the system whereby if they become good at a certain task or, or uh, station they get a card the level up culture the level up culture so when everyone around you is seeking to level up and again young people they're very impressionable they're like hey i i want that too and that's how we are able to get them to have that keen eager sense of wanting to learn new things so structure wise we allow the store managers to decide how it's done but uh, we provide the tools and the communication and the language so that learning is that daily communication and at the end of the shift they will have a debrief where they will pat each other on the back good job and apologize in general for the mistakes made even if they didn't make a mistake they have a pledge that they have to say together and then after that they will have a debriefing everyone from every station will get to vent their frustration hey i asked for this you didn't give me this so whatever that happens that day stays there they come back again and repeat that process in that environment it's all about hey if you make a mistake that's okay but how are you going to learn from it how are you going to do better from it so that's what the burger lab ecosystem is And let's jump back a bit to that whole virality moment. As I understand it, that whole thing lasted for two years before you started seeing that impact on yourselves when people started to be less drawn to it, I suppose. So did you anticipate that drop after two years, you know, seeing that sell jump from, I think, five figures down to four figures, getting lower and lower? Was that something you knew was coming? We knew it was coming. We didn't know when it was going to stop. So what used to be a 12,000 ringgit sales, then it became 11,000. And then over a few months, it became 10,000. Then it became 9,000. We, we were told that it would plateau. The question is, was it going to plateau at 2,000, 5,000, 6,000? That's where that big question mark is. But now, in hindsight, I would have easily calculated that because all you need to do is you have 5 to 10 o'clock. People come between 7 to 9 for the most part. And how many burgers you can serve at that time, you will know what, where your sales is. When we were trending, it just didn't make sense because people were coming from 4 to 10. 4 to just to queue up. That second year that you mentioned, yes, it was a bit scary. And we didn't know how to calculate it because to us, people coming in at five o'clock was normal. And over the years, I've seen friends who open restaurants that have gone through the cycle where they open up, like for example, Rebbe Mac. Rebbe Mac wasn't busy when you first started. They had to put their effort into letting people recognize them as a go-to place. Right now, every weekend they're packed. I think that that kind of growth is more sustainable. That's why you see a lot of brands that go into a trending cycle fail to have that sustainability. We got lucky. We really got lucky and we were able to figure things out over the years. We made a lot of mistakes because when in two hours of sales, you were making like 10K of sales. You didn't know what was normal. In fact, we started splurging a little bit, not on buying equipments, but we were taking a break every Monday and we were actually spending on the team. Not that that was a bad thing, but in hindsight, we could have splurged less. So maybe just steamboat in the store rather than going out to a nice dinner every other weekend. Um, so what, what I'm trying to say is that you really don't know how uh, things are supposed to be normal, especially when you're trending. And a lot of people don't know how to handle that instantaneous fame sometimes. It's just like winning the lottery. You hear a lot of these stories where people who win lotteries don't know what to do with their money and then they squander it all. We, we had a bit of that, in fact, and you don't know what was normal until normal came. I think after that, once you found that normal, you also found ways to peak yourselves with unicorn products. 
the things that make you really popular yeah. nowadays. Could you share a little bit about that? Because that is pretty much the thing that everyone knows you for, right? Like really quirky flavors that really work and you're always coming out with it all the time. So how does that process actually work? <laughs> so I think when we started, we wanted to be really good at making a simple cheeseburger, which I think we still do. Um, but because the word lab is in our name, there's a lot of expectation to say that we have to come up with cookie flavors. That sense of expectation was there. It was good because it pressured us to really get creative. But thankfully, I have a weird taste, meaning that ever since I was a kid, I like combining stuff together just for the sake of it. I was able to just take my own personal taste profile and project it onto our burgers. But little did I know that it was a concept called Anchor and Pivot that was used by some restauranters that allows them to derive a fair bit of success for them. So you take something that's familiar and you put a small twist to it. And that's what people usually go for. You don't need to come up with a whole new recipe. Right? Well, I mean, unless you are a, a, a Michelin star chef and whatnot, but we're just selling burgers. So you can take, let's say, a mushroom burger and adding an egg to it at one point was unheard of. And that was anchor and twist. But of course, when that became normal, then you're going to find out, you know, what else can you add on to that flavor profile? Our thought process has always been, we take something that is quite common and we add a little bit of a twist to it. And a lot of times it's very easy. You take something that is Western and you combine it with something that's Asian. So say, for example, you want to talk about pickles. The Western call it pickles. We have something called acha acha, right? And if you take a burger and you put the marination of acha acha into a burger, right, or a local cucumber, you will get that twist. For example, our current promotional product, which is the nasi lemak burger. A lot of people say, hey, your nasi lemak burger is not nasi lemak burger because there's no nasi. And I'm like, if you want nasi in your burger, then you eat a nasi lemak, lah, right? Uh, the, the idea here is how do we take inspiration from the flavors of a nasi lemak and put it in between two buns? So I'm quite proud of our creation because it addressed a few hurdles that a lot of people didn't do. And we addressed it and we created a, a, a quite a formidable product. So what is expected in a nasi lemak? Okay, you're going to have your coconut rice with lemak, right? You're going to have your kacang. And if you want a little bit indulgent, you need your fried chicken. And this one I hate, but you always find in, in, in some nasi lemak, a slice of cucumber or two, fresh cucumber. I absolutely hate it. So, okay. So we have all these ingredients. How do we turn it into a burger? So the chicken is a no-brainer. We already have fried chicken, right? The ikan bilis. So we were able to source ikan bilis, but... You will realize that our ikan bilis uh, is on the sweet side and also is smashed. Because we realize when we put whole ikan bilis in there, when people bite into it, it stabbed their roof, their, roof, <laughs> their, their mouth. Uh, so we, we had to blend that. Uh, then kacang. So kacang, obviously, if you put little bits of nuts in there, it's just all going to fall out. So we use peanut butter. And then for the taste of the nasi, the coconut rice, it's actually the taste of santan. And all you need to do is just recreate that flavor in another form. And to me, it was rendang. So we put rendang in replacement of that and there was an egg in there as well. And when you bite into the whole thing, you can see where the resemblance is or where the idea came from. I, I still think we serve one of the best nasi lemak burgers since the craze like two, three years ago where everyone decided to do a nasi lemak burger just for the sake of it and just chucking stuff together. But there wasn't much thought. And I believe that yesterday you tried the Elvis burger and you probably want to ask a little bit about that. The Elvis burger is a combination of Ikea meatballs and a PB&J sandwich. 
So the idea is we all grew up eating PB&J at some point. And then Ikea meatballs, you have your uh, meatballs with the Lingden Berry, I think they're called. So putting jam on your meat is not unheard of. I was really fascinated with this burger that already existed uh, because Elvis did love eating it. Uh, he likes his cheeseburger with banana, bacon, and peanut butter. But we didn't do that because number one, we wanted to be a halal establishment, so we didn't serve bacon. And I try not to touch beef bacon unless uh, it's necessary because it's just different taste profile. I didn't want to do bananas because it was very hard to get consistent bananas. So we thought, okay, how do we twist from there? That's where combining PB&J and meatballs came together. And we called it jamming with Elvis, like you jam. And anyway, we put blueberry jam. So the version that you had is actually the latest version where we made our own blueberry jam. Because prior to this, we actually buy from a distributor. However, due to MCO, they couldn't bring in any more of it. And we were like, okay, screw it. We'll just make our own blueberry jam. And in fact, we'll be selling our own blueberry jam soon. So that's how we came to be. But that sweetness, that creaminess of peanut butter in a cheeseburger, it just makes sense. In fact, if you think about it, in the Chinese cuisine, it's quite common to put peanut I mean, satay is peanut sauce. So meat and peanut does go well together. I think it's the jam part that throws people off a little bit. And I think maybe like when you explain it, it makes so much sense to put it on burger. But I suppose because no one has done it before, it's like two worlds colliding. You don't see it until you have it and you go, actually, that could work. Yeah. Well, wait till you try our <laughs> next month's feature burger. It's combining East and West together. And we call it the world's smelliest burger. You want to take a <laughs> guess what's in it? Is it durian? No, no. I, I know you have asked this question before and someone said durian, you said it wasn't. So Malaysian, we will consider petai as a very smelly dish. And then the Western ingredient that's smelly, what, what do you think it is? Blue cheese. There you go. So those two products actually don't go well together. However, I discovered that when you're pairing with flavors, if A and C don't go well together, but if A and B goes well together, and then B and C goes out together, you can put A, B, C together and it will bind that, har- that harmony. So what makes these two products goes well together? You want to take a guess? It's a fruit. So sambal, there's one version of sambal that has a fruit, a local fruit. Pineapple. Yes, pineapple. And then blue cheese, you eat with fruits. And if you eat blue cheese with pineapple, it's actually not a bad combination. I don't know if a lot of people try that. So when you have those three together, it just works. Don't ask me why. It just works. Wow. So how long does it normally take to come up with this? Surely you must have go through many variations and gone, okay, what works, what doesn't work? So most of the time, it just works because I've had experiences. I combine personal experiences and I go like, hey, I've tried this. I know this works. Then we put it together. It generally does work. Uh, well, of course, we, we do have a lot of failures, uh, but usually it's not because of the flavor combination, but it's just because it's, it's difficult to execute. But speaking of that, do we make the best burger in KL? The answer is no. There's a lot more smaller independent burger joints that does a better job. Why is that the case? The reason is because when we are at a scale that we are and we serve as many burgers as we are, there are certain things that we can't do. Say, for example, cheese. I, I would like to use more cheese on certain products so that I can call it like a triple cheese or quadruple cheese burger. But on the logistic side, it's very difficult for the team to execute. So I can't do it. Just based on that, a lot of things we want to do, but we can't simply because of how big we've grown and how fast we need to serve. 
Uh, for example, and I'm going to give a plug, there's this uh, restaurant called Min Min's, which is near the IKEA area. So they have this really popular deep fried burger concept. So it's basically burger ingredients that's wrapped in a dough and then they deep fry the whole thing. I don't think they were the first to invent it as I've seen it in the States before. I wanted to do it. I saw it, I tasted it. I was like, man, that's really good. How come I didn't copy this idea from the States before? And we tried to do it and we had a really good product. But we couldn't roll it out because it needs to be made fresh. It's not something that I can have my centralized kitchen pre-made ahead of time, wrap everything as I see, freeze it, and then go to the store and just fry it. Because when it's such a thick product and you deep fry it, inside it's not going to get warm. If you order it, it's one of those products that says, please give us at least 20 minutes to, to make this product for you. So in our facility, it's just not possible. So we have a lot of these products where, great products where it doesn't make it to the menu simply because... It's not logistically possible. And that pains me. Who knows, somewhere down the road, we might have a Burger Lab signature where we dedicate a little bit more time and expertise towards all these more gourmet burgers. I don't even call it the current burgers that we serve gourmet burgers because I believe that's a higher standard above that. And let's move on to how COVID impacts you. And I read that when you were approaching this uncertain period, you adopted a mantra of your mentors, which is when you're lost and you don't know what to do, the first thing that you can try is to be kind. Yep. And I would love to hear how you thought of implementing that through my burger lab. I mean, like right now you are in survival mode, right? You can't even expand. So how can you be kind while ensuring that you don't go under it can still pay yourself? I mean, we've always been in a better position because the branding is so strong and we did have a bit of money saved up. So we knew we had a bit of a runway if MCO was going to go into two, three months. So we knew we had reserves to help people out. Uh, So the first thing that we did was, okay, we're not going to go into a business mode where we're going to sell, 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 sell. We're going to turn our platform into a bit of a information center. We teach people about how bad COVID is, why you should wash your hands, and then inject a little bit of that Burger Lab humor into it. Start using e-wallets, don't use cash. So th- those were a start. It's not about selling anymore. Because obviously, all our social media platform is about sharing. And But at the end of the day, you are trying to sell a product. Let's not disguise that. And then after that, it was reaching out to fellow restauranters. So I created a group through the encouragement of a friend where there are like a thousand plus user base where most people there are within the FMB industry to just have a sounding board and to update each other of the latest news. And then after that, we started reaching out to other venues to say, hey, we can provide food. What, what can we do? Uh, and, and we just help out where we can. So we have had a lot of connections over the years with hospitals and, and whatnot. So just behind the scene, we, we support where we can. Uh, and then of course, our staff, because we use a lot of part-timers, we had to cut down the hours. But at the same time, we also knew that a few of them needed the money to just survive. So we had an initiative where we said, hey, if there are tasks that you want us to do, we can put our gigs to good use and we'll pay them for the hours. So this was just a few things that we could cook up in the first two weeks. So that's how we responded because we were just waiting for information, for things to just pan out to see how we should react. So instead of just sitting idly there, we just did what we could within our means. So at this point, where do you see the future of my Lab? As a business or as a restaurant? I think it's two different answers. So as a business, I want to continue expanding. I want to grow the business to something that will be recognizable, hopefully on on some international standard. On the restaurant side, I think we're still discovering what we can do. Burger Lab, for what it is right now, will continue, will be the main brand. 
we have developed a few new uh, verticals during MCO, selling our frozen products. Your home kit. Yeah, our home kit, which has developed into a whole range of products. Instead of a one kit where you get, you know, uh, selected, you, you can buy anything that's within our menu for the most part. And that is slowly growing into a burger solution business. So we have a few restaurants that we are working with that is asking us, hey, I run a restaurant, I run a cafe, but I serve a lot of things. Can I serve your burgers? Can I buy a home kit? And we're like, okay, don't buy the home kit. Let me create a burger with you. And then you can put my brand there. My thought is, if Romney can do what they do on a street food level, I think we might be able to give that solution. So every single restaurant or cafe that is out there that wants a burger solution, and because we are recognized for the quality that we have and the creativity that we have, I think it would be win-win. So if people come to a cafe that sells my burger lab, collaborated burgers, hopefully it brings in a little bit of customer. And I think we've tested that with uh, Strangers at 47 and uh, Yellow Brick Road. They sell quite a substantial amount of burgers per week because people just coming in here, they don't want just to eat crepes or just eat pasta. They have options. And having that name behind them gives that assurance that, hey, that burger is of quality. So that's a new business venture. Given all your experiences, do you feel that you have found your why? I found my ikigai. I think I found my ikigai. So if you do what you love, you get paid for what you love, and what you do is needed by the community, you find that happiness. I do like what I do. I do get paid well. I think people do need what we, we serve them. I am happy. I, I am happy. I mean, I'm tired because the business was actually fairly stable just before MCO. And I was like just having a time of my life traveling and then just getting fit again. And then MCO happened. I mean, again, this is just me bitching, but everyone has gone through the same problem. But I enjoy, I thoroughly enjoy what I do. Although this couple of months has been a little bit strenuous, but again, we are all experiencing that together. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I haven't really thought too much about that. I mean, the legacy is what people perceive it to be. Some people can say, oh, we reshaped the burger industry in Malaysia. Great. Some people might say, oh, he helped a lot of young adults uh, discover who they are. I mean, that's great too. To me, I do what I find purposeful. And at this point in time, it's giving people opportunities that either I wish I was given or I was given. Um, because I think in this world, people don't help each other enough. Uh, and if we can help one another, the world will just be a better place. I think a lot of people say, you're an atheist. What's your goal in life? Simple. I, I always you know, take the two golden rules, the golden rule and the silver rule, you know, to do unto others as you would like to be done upon and then to not do unto others as you would not like others to do upon you. And I think that in itself uh, would, would make me happy. As long as I do those two things, I think I will leave different legacies for other people to talk about. And what do you think are the most important qualities a person have, should have to succeed as you? I'm not some kind of guru. <laughs> Personally, like I said, just do good. I mean, we're all in this world together. We, we are often too divided. I think just help out whenever you can. If you've got nothing good to say, don't say it. Um, don't spread lies. Just do as much good as you can in, in your lifetime. And where can people go to connect with you and find out more about My Burger Lab? Usually, you can find me on, on uh, our social media. I don't have a personal one, but yeah, or my email, rini at myburgerlab.com, but I don't guarantee that I can reply it. I don't want to sound as if I am not approachable, but it, it, it's quite difficult. I don't know how celebrities and, and whatnot do it, but... They have assistance. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. 
yeah, but I have a business to run. I have a life to live. But if someone needs help, if they tell their story and if I can help in some way, I will do so. And that was the end of episode 16. The show notes can be found at sothisismywhy.com forward slash 16. This includes the transcript and links to everything we just talked about. Let me know what you've learned by going to Apple Podcasts to leave a review and subscribe. And also take a screenshot of today's episode on Instagram and tag me at so this is my why and Rennie at MyBurgerLab with the hashtag so this is my why. If you want to hang out, we also have a private Facebook group to keep the conversation going. And some of our podcast guests will be showing up for a limited time to answer any of your burning questions. To join, just head over to Facebook and look for So This Is My Why. And stay tuned for episode 17, which drops next Sunday, because we'll be meeting a two-time British Olympian on how she got started on her athletic journey and how, upon retirement, she pivoted and found a place for herself.